evidence and answers. The compatibility of science and faith rests entirely upon how one defines those terms. Is science an impartial search for truth? or a methodology in which the right kind of answers are more important than the right answers? Is faith merely religious wishful thinking or a step of trust based on the evidence? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the arena of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Each year, Pat hosts an apologetics conference located in beautiful Hawaii. Today, we are listening to one of those teachings taken from the 2018 Apologetics Conference. Greg Kokel reveals how a philosophical commitment to naturalism stifles the search for truth, and that rather than being hostile to science, Biblical Christianity is the seedbed that gives modern science its start. If you're unable to hear this entire broadcast, all of our messages are available on our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Now on to part one of today's message entitled, Faith and Science. Are they compatible? Earlier today I mentioned that one of the things that we're trying to do is to help you see conceptually kind of what's going on in the culture. And this talk is one of those talks. It's called Science and Faith, Are They Compatible? And it strikes me there's kind of an odd thing that is going on, and I'm going to go back about 150 years or so to an event that happened, and it's not entirely clear whether what I'm about to cite actually did take place. But it's a good illustration, I think, to launch off with. And that is, in 1860 or thereabouts, Samuel Wilberforce at Oxford gave a speech at the British Association for the Advancement of Science. And of course, during that time, this is when the Darwinian model had just kind of hit the uh, streets, and it created a lot of attention, and a whole lot of people grabbed onto it right away. Not because of the merits, because Darwin really didn't have much at that point to substantiate his view, but what the reason they grabbed onto it is because it gave them an opportunity to get God out of the biological picture. And I think that was the big motivation. But that aside, during this debate, T.H. Huxley, known as Darwin's bulldog, in other words, an apologist for Darwin, was also part of the program. And Wilberforce, Samuel Wilberforce, not William, that's a different William, or the anti-slavery guy, it's a different one. But Samuel Wilberforce asked Huxley on the panel, whether he was descended from an ape on his grandmother's side or on his grandfather's side. Now, it probably got some chuckles in the audience, but it was a stupid remark because it was disparaging of his opponent, okay? And Huxley, quick of wit, allegedly said, if then the question is put to me, would I rather have a miserable ape for a grandfather or, and now he's referring to Wilberforce, a man highly endowed by nature and possessing great means of influence and yet who employs these faculties and that influence for the mere purpose of introducing ridicule into a grave discussion, a scientific discussion, I unhesitatingly affirm my preference for the ape. <laughs> so this is well answered, you know, he fires back well. 
And, but he's making a point. We have something important to talk about. And if we're going to be academics talking about an important issue, what we aren't going to do is make silly jokes about other people, thinking that if we can ridicule somebody, we've done the job that needs to be done in dealing with the idea. Now, that was a long time ago. That was 1860, okay? How would that approach work today? What if I were to say, for example, it is absolutely safe to say that if you believe if you meet somebody who says he believes in evolution, that person is ignorant, stupid, or insane. Well, that would be the same kind of mistake that Wilberforce made. Well, such a statement actually was made with a slight variation. And here is the quote as it was actually spoken by Oxford zoologist Richard Dawkins. It is absolutely safe to say that if you meet somebody who claims not to believe in evolution, that person is ignorant, stupid, or insane. Now, you might have recognized the name Richard Dawkins because he's probably the best known apologist, defender, of not only Darwinian evolution in the popular realm, but also of atheism in the popular realm. He's one of four that are called the so-called new, new atheists. And the reason I, I point this out is that now the shoe is on the other foot. It isn't as if we've all figured out that ridicule and name-calling and that kind of nonsense is not an appropriate way to address issues like this. What has happened to a large degree is that the sides have simply flipped. And so when this issue comes up, the issue of science and faith, which is a big issue in our culture now and has policy ramifications, the government has been involved in this, the courts have been involved in this. I don't care so much about that. What I care about is the way people understand this discussion just between people who have convictions on either side and how this discussion is carried out. And I want to talk a little bit about how what's going on here and why there is this conflict or apparent conflict. No, it isn't apparent. There is a real conflict between, and I'm just going to use scare quotes here, because science and faith. The reason I use scare quotes is everything depends on how you understand those words. And my point here, and I'm going to do my best to grab from a number of different areas to substantiate this point, is that I do not think that the present-day conflict between science and faith has anything to do with facts. It has, in a certain sense, to do with a kind of intellectual courage that in 1860 T.H. Huxley showed in that debate, and Wilberforce did not, nor in modern times has Dawkins. It has to do with whether or not we are willing to put to the test the statement of faith of the larger scientific community, and I'm using my words advisedly here, that the cosmos is all there is, all there was, or all there ever will be. Now this, of course, is from Carl Sagan from the cosmos, probably the most well-known science uh, video 
or training of all time, shown in lots of schools. They've actually recently, in the last few years, had a remake of it. What's curious about the core statement of that series is there is not a single thing that is scientific about it. The cosmos is all there is, all there was, and all there ever will be. Science cannot speak as a knowledge discipline. It cannot speak to all there ever was. It cannot speak to all there ever is, there is or all there ever will be. It is beyond its province. This is a philosophical statement, or maybe you might want to read it as a religious statement. Might have noted, by the way, the cosmos is all there is, ever was, or ever will be, has a little bit of a familiarity, a familiar ring. It sounds like the Gloria Patri. Sounds like a religious claim. And actually taken by itself, it is. Now, this is offensive to some when they think about that. You say that science is religion? No, I'm not saying science is religion. I'm saying that statement is not science. It's religion. And this is part of the confusion. If what you mean by religion is a broad metaphysical view of the world, okay? If you mean like God and angels and souls and demons and sin and heaven and hell, well, that's, that's not entailed there. But that's just one version of a religious or metaphysical view of the world, a, a whole take on thing. I need to say up front here that I'm not a scientist. My training is in, the, uh, in theology and philosophy. But I, I will also say that scientists are not very good at answering this, questions, this question or dealing with this issue. And the reason is it's not a scientific issue. It turns out to be a philosophical issue. The relationship of science and the relationship to religious questions is not a scientific question. It is a philosophical question. And Einstein has pointed out that scientists are notorious for doing bad philosophy. Okay, so I, I'm approaching this from a little bit of a different perspective. I am not going to advance a religious view here. That's not my project. I want to talk about the nature of a conflict, and the conflict is principally philosophical, and I am qualified to speak to that. But you don't have to be a philosopher to figure this out, because I'm trying to throw the, the ball that you can, so you can catch it, and you'll get an idea of what is going on. The particular issue, is there a conflict between faith and science? And we'll keep those scare quotes around both of them, because the answer to that question depends entirely by what you mean by faith, first. Second, what you mean, uh, what faith religious tradition you have in mind, two. And three, what you mean by science. Let me say this again, because this is going to be a little outline for you if you confront the issue with somebody else. Well, what about the conflict between faith and science? Well, there's some ambiguity here. What do you mean? Well, the answer to that question depends on what you mean by faith, what faith tradition you have in view, what religious tradition you think is in conflict with science, and third, what you mean by science. And my basic thesis here is that Christianity as a if you will, faith, tradition, I don't like the word, but I'm just going to use it for the moment, is not in conflict with science as a knowledge tradition. 
Christianity as a classical faith tradition is not in conflict with science as a knowledge tradition. Of course, we all agree that science is there to give us knowledge about the world. It turns out science does a lot more than that, too. And that's where part of the problem is. So I'm just going to take those three areas. Depends on what you mean by faith. It depends on what faith you mean. And it depends on what you mean by science. Okay, so let's start with the first one. Faith is virtually universally characterized by secularists, atheists characteristically, as being a belief with no evidence. It doesn't matter who you read, whether it's Chris Hitchens or Richard Dawkins or Sam Harris or Peter Bogosian or Michael Shermer, they all define faith the same way. Believe in something you know ain't so, is the way Mark Twain put it. Believing something with no good reason. Believing something with no evidence. It's all a leap of faith, blind faith kind of definition. All right? Let me make an observation about that. Language is conventional. That means words have meanings based on how they use their meanings. And if you, if you want to talk to an atheist, and an atheist says, well, this is what I mean by faith, and then gives this definition, well, now you know what he means when he uses that, that word. That's okay with me. If an atheist thinks faith is a blind leap, then he's welcome to that definition, okay? What he is not welcome to is changing my definition. Now, in this case, the atheists aren't just sitting by themselves defining words for themselves. They are projecting those definitions on other people. People of religious conviction who have quote-unquote faith. Well, what is that faith that they have? I'll tell you what faith they have, they say. That's a blind leap. That's believing things without evidence. Is that what they think? Is that what the religious people mean when they use that word? Now, Unfortunately, in our case, there's a lot of Christians who use the word faith in that way. So in order to get this right, if this is a legitimate challenge against Christianity, you can't, you can't get your counsel from Christians. You've got to get it from the book that defines Christianity. And this is a book that does not define faith as believe in something you don't know. On that view, you have knowledge over here for which you might have evidence and you know some things. Science is on that side, for example. And then over here, you've got faith. Notice the way I've constructed this is that knowledge and evidence and faith are on the opposite extremes, right? So the more knowledge you have, there's an inverse relationship. The more knowledge you have on this definition, the less faith you need to exercise. The less knowledge you have, the more faith you need to exercise. In fact, when I've come into churches, talk with Christians about apologetics, sometimes they say, if there is so much good evidence for this, where is room for what? Faith. faith. Notice how they have absorbed the definition that knowledge is way over here and faith is way over there. The more knowledge you have, the less faith you have. You're giving us apologetics. That gives us knowledge. Where's the room for faith? 
what they have done is completely misunderstood the biblical concept of faith. And rather, they have absorbed a cultural imposition of a view that, by the way, only goes back about 200 years. Classically, this isn't the way it's been. The second century was the beginning of the apologists. What were apologists doing? They were making a defense for Christians being persecuted and for the Christian faith. When I say faith there, I mean the Christian body of, of, of knowledge or information. And so what I'd like to do is I'd like to make very clear for you what the Bible teaches about faith. And if atheists want to criticize faith in the Bible, they have to criticize it and not their fanciful redefinition of it. If you redefine faith for us and then attack it, you've attacked a straw man. You've defeated a view we don't hold. That is, we don't if we're biblically informed. And so that's why I'm giving you this biblical information. I had a question earlier today, and it was a very fair question. It's asked me a lot, but it will be a good one to launch out on this question of what actually is faith, biblically speaking. The question was, what do you make of Jesus criticizing Thomas because he is asking to see the marks in order to believe and Jesus, in the resurrected Christ? And Jesus said, blessed is he who does not what? See, but still believes. Now that's frequently construed as blessed is he who doesn't ask for reasons or evidence, but just simply takes a blind leap of faith, all right? So how do you answer that? The gentleman asked me, and I said, it's easy. You read the next verse. So we have a little rule at Stand to Reason. It's called never read a Bible verse. That means you want to read the whole thing, like a paragraph at least, or else it's too easy to misunderstand what's going on. What does the next verse say? This is John writing in the very next verse, giving his reason for writing the entire Gospel of John. And here's what he says. Many other signs and wonders Jesus performed that I have not included in this book. Later on in the chapter, he says, if he were to do that, it would fill all the books of the world. There's a lot of things he did that I didn't write, but the ones that I did include, in other words, the miraculous signs that Jesus performed that were chronicled in the Gospel of John, these I placed in there so that you will what? Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and in believing have life in his name. Okay, now think about it. If Jesus is telling Thomas it's wrong to have evidence, which is parallel with seeing in that passage, rather we just have blind faith, then John, who writes the account, is completely contradicting Jesus in the next verse. This verse all by itself ought to make it clear, given that it's the purpose of the Gospel of John, according to the writer of the Gospel of John, to give reasons and evidence for our faith in Jesus so we can be saved. That's right there in that verse. That Jesus could not be denying, when he's talking to Thomas, what John states in the next verse. So what is Jesus talking about? Blessed are those who have not what? Seen. seen. 
That's an eyeball thing going on there. What should have Thomas have done? He should have believed what his buddies told him because they were pretty reliable witnesses. And plus, he'd spent three and a half years with Jesus, watching Jesus work miracles, turn water into wine, and heal the lepers and the lame, and raise, you know, give sight to people born blind, and raise the dead, and then predict his own death and his own resurrection. That's the history for Thomas. And then Thomas, after Jesus dies, of course, they're all discouraged, but the rest of them say, we've seen Jesus and Thomas said, unless I can put my finger in the hole, I will not believe. Do you think that's just a little bit much? And I think that's exactly the point that Jesus was making. You're demanding to see with the eyes when there is plenty of evidence for you to have trusted based on the evidence. Okay, so now I'm using a synonym. I don't like the word faith. People say, well, faith in the Bible. So you better like it. And I say, faith is not in the Bible. Faith is an English word. What's in the Bible is a Greek word. It's pisteo or some form. And what pisteo means is active trust. And the English word faith now has been corrupted by lots of folk, including some Christians and atheists, to make it sound like it means something else, blind or leap of. I don't want to go there. I don't want that problem. So I'm using a synonym. Trust, active trust. Now, why would we actively trust? We would actively trust because we have good reason to do so. And so it turns out, biblically, and I'll, I'll give you illustrations of this in a moment, that biblical faith, active trust, is not contrary to the evidence, way over there, it is consistent with the evidence. The biblical pattern is, first there is evidence that gives knowledge. So you, you have enough information so you can say, you know this thing to be so. But knowing the thing is not enough. You have to act on what you know. You have to act in trust, active trust, before it works. Okay? Simple illustration. Tomorrow... There is a berth waiting for me on a Delta flight leaving at 2.30 back to L.A. Now, I hope it's on a jumbo jet because when I came out on the jumbo jet, there were a few extra first-class seats, which I was able to occupy on my way out. So I am looking forward to my flight back and hope I'm going first cabin. We'll see. But I have no misgivings about the capability of the pilot and the plane to take me to my destination. I have knowledge about that, but that's not enough, is it? Just because the plane is capable and the pilot is capable does not mean that I'm gonna end up in LA. What else is needed? I gotta get on the plane, right? Make sense? What do you call that? You call that active trust. There were a lot of people in the Gospels where, where it actually says of them, they believed in Jesus, but it's clear they were not trusting in him because they left him right away. John chapter 2, it says he wasn't entrusting himself to any of them because he knew what was in a man. Things get hard, they're gone. 
John chapter 6, you got a lot of that going on. These are all people who had a belief. I'm telling you, there are people filling churches every Sunday morning all over the country who believe in Jesus and have never trusted him for anything. And their lives show that. So there is a way to believe, which is an accent or an acknowledgement of certain things that are true, but then there is a step further biblical trust based on the reasons where you get on the plane and then Jesus does for you what you can't do for yourself. Once again, our time has come to a close. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like Pat to speak at your church or Bible study, or perhaps hold an apologetics conference, please give him a call. Locally in Hawaii, his number is 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Evidence and Answers relies on generous support from you, our listeners. To keep this broadcast on the air, you have the opportunity to donate. Head on over to our website. Once again, that's evidenceandanswers.org. You may do so right there online on the homepage. We have a wide variety of resources available to you. Everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles, additional audio for you to listen to or download, as well as Pat's books. So be sure and share our website with your family, your friends, and your church. Evidence and Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions. To learn more, visit them online at hcmlp.com. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucran. Yeah.